Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey guys, welcome to this week's roundup. Uh, first, I'd like to apologize for the sound last week. Um, I got a new mic stand that goes on the table, not on the floor. So I didn't realize every time I nudged the keyboard or even really touched the table, there'd be like a low thump sound. Um, and when I mix these podcasts, I mix them on the same speakers that I do for the my band's album stuff, which are supposed to be flat so you could hear all the instruments. But that also means you can't hear any of the low thumping stuff until after it's already mixed and exported. So I didn't even realize it until it was already up on YouTube. So I'm sorry, and I'll try really hard to never let that happen again. Um, and also, my buddy Kenji told me about Hit Film Express 4, a new video editing software that's free. So I'm trying out that this week. And check it out. I'm fancy. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, anyway, um, let's just get right to it. Pre-orders are now open on the Retro DC Power Adapter, um, and this is pretty cool. I've been actually testing this for a long time now. Uh, ben, the creator of it, sent me one almost a year ago now, um, and I use it for all of my uh, testing and I, all of my gaming, really, for at least Genesis. Uh, and it's basically one adapter that's compatible with a ton of systems, but I specifically use it for Genesis, 32X, and Sega CD. That way it's one power adapter that could do all three at the same time. Um, and it's great. There's absolutely no difference at all from the original, at least that I could tell. And like I said, I even tried this out while I was doing picture comparison tests. So if there was any kind of noise added or if I saw anything on screen, I actually would swap out to the original Genesis one just to see if there was a difference. And this thing's never caused any trouble. So um, it's a little expensive, but I think it's worth it, especially if you think of how much it would cost to buy actual original OEM power supplies. But um, I'll put a link up to every console it's compatible with. But anybody with multiple systems, especially the Genesis 32X and Sega CD, should definitely give it a shot. A user on the Assembler Games forum called Samson 7.1 was trying to mod uh, Game Boy Color for a backlight. So this is something that's been talked about for a while, and many people have come to the conclusion that it can't be done, you could only do the front light mod. Um, and Samson 7.1 wasn't really uh, satisfied with the results, he wanted to try it himself. So he ended up tearing it all apart, trying a couple different things, and he came to the same conclusion that no, you can't really do it. But I kind of love stuff like this, because so many times I've heard people say something can't be done, and then eventually people do it. So um, if anybody's interested, I'll post the link. I thought it was really cool what he did, and it really showed why specifically it can't be done, and not just it can't be done. So um, you know, I, I always appreciate the work like that, and uh, I would never consider something like that a failure, because I'm sure a ton was learned in the process. So thanks to him, and definitely check that out if you're interested in GBC mods. Saturn U just released a tool that allows you to convert save games back and forth from PC emulators to the EverDrive 64. Uh, and stuff like this is always pretty awesome. I mean, so now you could have a game that you've been playing on an emulator, but now you just got an EverDrive 64, do the quick conversion, you could pick up right where you left off on original hardware. So stuff like this is always helpful and really appreciated. And Saturn U is also the guy that does a ton of uh, N64 hacking and uh, he put out some of the anti-aliasing hacks and a bunch of other tools, so big thank you to him, and I'll put the link, obviously, for anybody that wants to try it out. The creator of the game Gunman Clive 
ported the first level to both SNES and Game Boy, and I think it was just last week he actually released it to the SNES. Um, I'd never really played this game before, but it looks like a really cool side-scroller, uh, and it's available on you know Wii U and all the platforms. Um, and I guess the creator, just for fun, wanted to put it out also on uh, at least the first level on SNES and Game Boy. And uh, I think it looks really cool. I'm looking forward to trying it, and I just thought it was something neat I might want to tell everybody else to check out as well. The Zelda game for Nintendo DS, Phantom Hourglass, was just released on the North American Wii U Virtual Console. I actually missed that piece of news a few weeks ago, so I'm a bit late on this. Uh, I guess the game was released in other parts of the world back in November of 2015, and now it's just available for North America. Um, I actually only played one DS game on the Wii U, and that was the new Super Mario Brothers, and there was definitely some lag that I noticed, uh, much more so than the GBA ports. Um, I actually ended up playing it through the Wii U, but on my Sony BVM CRT, and then that was fine. Um, I haven't checked out the Phantom Hourglass version yet. Um, I hope to get to it soon, because I remember kind of liking it on the DS when it came out. I just uh, I was always annoyed by the stylus uh, controls, and I believe this port still requires you to use the stylus controls that didn't uh, make it over to a D-pad. But there is actually a hack for the DS ROMs that allow you to use the D-pad in most cases. So I'm thinking maybe I would actually be better off trying that first, but if I ever get around to it, I'll definitely post info, and if anybody's tried both or either, you know, definitely let me know in the comments. The game Wonder Boy 3 is being remade into a full HD remake by a company called Lizard Cube, uh, and Omar, who goes by Bach on the SMS Power Forums, is one of the main guys on the company, at least I think, uh, and it looks really cool. Um, uh, I guess Wonder Boy was part of the Adventure Island series, but named different. Um, it's actually still kind of confusing to me how that all happened. Um, I'll post the Wikipedia links for anybody that wants to read about it, but the remake looks pretty cool, um, and hopefully one day I'll get uh, Omar on here for an interview, because I've actually been talking to him on the forums for years now, and he always contributes a ton to SMS Power, so hopefully this project will take off for him and he'll be able to you know, make it pretty successful. The clothing company Vans has partnered up with Nintendo to make a line of clothing that's Nintendo branded. So they have a bunch of old school logos on there, they have a really cool Zelda pair of shoes, and it's just, it's pretty neat. But unfortunately for me, I have huge wide feet, and none of these shoes ever fit me. I've never been able to fit into a pair of Vans, and it's just really annoying. I feel like, you know, making a big stink about foot discrimination or some crap like that, but... Uh, it looks neat, and it looks like something I totally would have wore on stage with my band just for fun. You know, like a big big old pair of Zelda sneakers or something right up there. So um, maybe I'll give it a try and see if it'll fit anyway. But if anybody likes uh, any kind of Nintendo clothing, definitely check that stuff out. And the last bit of news, literally as I was recording these videos, Super G has officially announced his next development project, which is the component video switch that's similar to his G-Scart switch. So I've been talking with him about this for a while. I wasn't sure when he was going to officially announce it, but I guess it's literally right now. Um, and it's four inputs to one output. It supports component video and composite video. Uh, and I believe it's automatic switching as well, just like the other one. Um, and there is a manual override switch being uh, integrated as well. So for some reason, a few people were complaining about the auto switching of the G-SCART switch. So now you have that option. Um, he's tested it and there's zero quality loss, which is a big deal because I've used a lot of passive component switchers where as soon as you put your console in, you actually notice some, um, you know, color differences and signal quality loss. So just like the G-SCART switch, you get zero loss from this. Um, no word on when pre-orders will be up or anything else. It's just uh, announcing the project officially and that there will be a release soon. 
Um, and also the G-SCART switch, both the JP21 and the regular EuroSCART, uh, those will be back up for pre-order soon, and the pre-orders will just stay open. So rather than have, you know, pre-orders reach a limit, then, you know, ship them, go again, he's just going to leave the pre-orders open uh, pretty much forever, and then whenever he gets enough in to place an order, he'll place an order and then kind of go from there. So that should appease everybody that got a little upset when they weren't able to get the first batch. Um, but uh, I will post on Twitter and Facebook as soon as all of that stuff's available and probably talk about it again next week if it's official. Now on to a few Q&As from last week. Uh, Roy asked two questions. Uh, his first question was, do you know if it's possible to get RGBS from a Wii in 480p? Um, no, uh, not using the actual console itself. So you could use a component video to uh, RGB or VGA converter. Um, the key digital one is one I've used for a while. Uh, the Behar brothers have the Garo, which is just released, which I'll be testing as soon as it comes in. But from the actual console itself, um, there's no way that I know, not even with a software hack. So you can get 240p and 480i through an RGB cable if it's a PAL flashed console, or if you use some, uh, you know, some hacked swap techniques so you boot a game using usb loader in pal mode but overall um i think it's you know there's no quality difference and it's worth it just to leave it you know in component and use a converter uh, and the garo seems to be the converter of choice for that so as soon as i get one in um, i'll do a full review of it uh, the other part of your question is a little more complicated uh, does c-sync from the board of a console look better than c-sync stripped from composite or luma so in most cases, having a composite as sync will add some sort of interference. Sometimes it's so minimal you don't even really notice it, um, but sometimes it creates jail bars or a pretty bad look. Um, using Luma is usually never any, uh, any actual quality problems. Um, some people have reported here and there, but for the most part, uh, I've never personally had an issue, but if if it's a compatibility thing, so many video capture cards, many video processors and switches um, won't allow anything other than C-Sync. So if the, your issue is only compatibility, then throwing a, a sync stripper in the SCART heads or using a G-SCART switch or a sync, uh, sync strike, that'll solve all your problems for compatibility. But if you're talking specifically about signal interference, if you're really worried about it and you have any kind of interference, you'd want to install the sync stripper in the console. So cut the um, pins on the multi out, cut the traces, you know, build the sync stripper into it and then use that. And that would solve your issue. But um, I guess I made that really complicated. And I guess the shorter answer, if you were looking for just a basic yes or no, is use C-Sync as much as possible. If you can't use C-Sync, use Luma. And if you can't use that, use composite. And probably you're gonna see a little bit of a difference using composite video as sync, but um, in some cases, there's nothing you can do. So I hope that answered it well. Uh, if not, just let me know and I'll try to clarify it. Next up, GottenX25 asked, where do I buy the metal carts from and do they have wheels? Uh, so I got mine from Amazon and yep, they all have wheels and I love them. Um, I started out with a, a plastic cart that I called the Retro Cart, which just had like a Trinitron monitor and a couple of consoles on it. And that was very cool. And for people that are just looking to get into basic retro gaming, I highly recommend that. You can get the TVs for almost free, if not free. You know, use a Genesis with a HD Retrovision cables to component, use a SNES with S-Video, and then use a NES with composite, and you're done. It's really cheap. It'll work fine. 
Um, then I moved on to what I called the RGB cart, which Wes from Second Opinion Games actually has now. And that was a larger version of that, but with an RGB monitor. And to be honest, if I didn't write about consoles and do videos and stuff, I probably would have that forever. Um, the only problem with both of those were they were not adjustable. So you had to cut the poles if you need it shorter in size. And, um, you know, they were kind of small. Uh, the second one fit quite a bit of consoles on it, and I did some fancy wiring, and it worked great for me. Uh, but then once I started doing more testing and more reviews and stuff, I kind of moved on to what I called the retro tower. So it was just a huge IKEA bookshelf with, um, I think I had 22 consoles in it, all wired up. Um, the component consoles went through a component switch into one port of a VGA switch um, through a component to VGA converter. And then the rest of my consoles were wired from RGB to a VGA style connector. So everything went into one uh, and it was awesome. It worked great, but it took forever to set up. And anytime you had to remove anything also took forever because all the wires were neatly tied up and everything. So it was just kind of useless for me. It looked great. And it was, I mean, everybody that came over, even people that don't care at all about retro consoles or gaming would always ask about it and want to talk about, you know, what the different consoles were, you know, why do I have them? It was, it was pretty cool, but it just was not practical for me at all. So I decided to tear everything apart and buy these wheel racks, the really tall ones um, that you see in the background, uh, and like legal boxes to put all the each consoles in. Um, and then I have them all labeled. And then uh, each RGB monitor got its own cart, and all the carts are adjustable, uh, except for one of the smaller ones. But um, the two larger um, the wire rack carts are fully adjustable, so I was able to get the size just right for where I sit to play games. That way it's always at you know the perfect eye level. Um, and that's just been perfect for me, you know, for, I'm sure you guys have seen in these videos how, you know, I always move the room around depending on whatever project I'm working and it's just great. Um, I just watched the My Life in Gaming studio tour of how they did the background, uh, in the, you know, behind the scenes and they showed their gaming setup and Mark kind of had me laughing because in the video, everything looked gorgeous and pristine. And like two days later, he uh, tweeted a picture of everything just in complete disarray. And that's exactly what it was like for me. So once I moved on to these things, it was really cool. I was able to just kind of pull something out, do a test, put it back in, and it just saves hours of time. And it doesn't look as nice, but at least it's nice and neat. So uh, anybody on YouTube, I just gave a quick little you know, a quick little view of what it's like, and uh, eventually one day I'll do a full studio tour, if you will, but if you could see over there, um, my guitar hanging rack thing still isn't really finished, so my office is only halfway rebuilt, but uh, I hope uh, I hope that wasn't too long an answer to your question, but uh, bought them from Amazon, yes, they do have wheels. <laughs> and finally, after the last episode aired, I got a really awesome email from somebody named Kenji. Uh, the guy actually who I mentioned earlier, and he just listed a bunch of really great production tips, uh, was the one that introduced me to that software, and even helped out Evan Amos, Evan's the guy who takes all the console pictures, uh, even helped him out uh, finding an RGB monitor, so just wanted to say a huge thank you to Kenji, really appreciate that, so does Evan, um, and you know, I really do appreciate everybody's comments, so thank you again for everybody who's always trying to, to point me in the right direction, so just uh, wanted to say a quick thank you to Kenji and everybody else that always helps. Okay, well, that's it for the Roundup stuff. Uh, next, we have an interview with Sean Green, the creator of the Bliss Box. Uh, I had a great time talking to Sean, um, learned a lot about kind of how controllers work and 
uh, just a lot of things that I found really interested in that I didn't even realize I would be interested in learning about. So um, I hope everybody enjoys it as much as I do and stick through it because he talks about his next product at the end, which I am mega, mega excited about. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have a video camera, so it's mostly just me on camera and him talking, so sorry. Um, I did, for anybody watching on YouTube, I kind of put a few videos of the Bliss Box in action, uh, just so you could kind of see how it works and the ups and downs of it. The only downs of it that I really found is that uh, for games that you can't change the controller mapping, like on PS3, it, it kind of stinks, but it's not the Bliss Box's fault, that's the PS3. So. Uh, I hope everybody enjoys as much as I do, and thanks to Sean for coming on, and thanks to all you guys for watching. Hey, we're here with Sean Green, the inventor of the Bliss Box. Um, how's it going, man? Pretty good. So um, I've been following your product since I think I first stumbled across it, which was I think your first Kickstarter, um, and it always looked really cool. Um, you know, you want to just uh, kind of tell us how you stumbled across making it and, um, you know, kind of how it all came about? Well, <clears throat> that can be kind of long-winded, uh, so stop me if it gets too long. Okay. Um, but what I kind of like to point out is that somewhere back in 2005, um, <clears throat> it's when it piqued my interest that there's a lot of these adapters on the market, and uh, they do pretty cool things, but they cost a lot of money, and it adds up real fast. Yeah. Um, and I, I had uh, pretty good experience electronics, so I started toying with the idea of putting it all together, kind of what Blissbox does today. <clears throat> what I first started with was just kind of stripping apart um, adapters and kind of wiring all the USBs to switches so that you could just kind of manually switch from one USB port to the other. I think a couple other guys have done that in, in the past few years here because uh, I've seen some of the other people doing that kind of thing. Um, but it really doesn't save you any money. All it does is puts, uh, makes a convenience in a box. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point is when I kind of Stumbled onto a web page. Um, guy's name's Raphael. I'd butcher his last name, um, but a lot of people that are buy USB adapters and yeah, Raphael, yourself. Yeah, right? Yeah, Raphael. You're pretty familiar with him. Uh, he took kind of a. He had an option where he had four of them put into one. Um, so fortunately, uh, he he believes heavily in the open source world. Uh, he likes to share his ideas with other people. And in my situation, um, when I saw his um, project and what he did, it made a lot of sense to me because I kind of understood what he was doing, but he kind of filled in some of the missing blanks uh, that gave me the necessarily necessary ability to kind of move forward <clears throat> in creating what I created. Um, some things that, you know, I just didn't have any experience with by analyzing his product, I kind of saw what he was doing. So that was kind of the catapult to the whole thing. <clears throat> and when I loaded his project up, um, what I did is I started getting controllers off the market and trying to figure out a way to communicate with them, which is no simple task. Um, but there was a lot of uh, momentum and dedication on my part because I really wanted like a one solution. And ultimately, I was thinking, you know, some of the major ones <clears throat> just to uh, be able to play emulation with a couple different types of controllers. But it evidently leaded to something kind of, of a greedy hobby to me. And I just pretty much wanted to get everything. I mean, I didn't want to really leave anything behind. And with all um, that much work put into it, it makes sense to jam as many different types as you could into that one project. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like at that point, why not? Right. <clears throat> um, so I did a lot of custom jobs, um, and I was pretty happy with everything. And a lot of people would just tell me, well, why don't you make a product out of it? So I researched that a little bit, and 
that's not really for the faint-hearted. That's a lot of work, a lot of money. <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. So, uh, well, I took the plunge. The first Kickstarter didn't work. We we relaunched the second one. It got got me enough, um, you know, attention out there because there was enough people actually buy it. So I fronted the cash, um, went ahead and orchestrated everything that's involved and developed a product, and it's still selling pretty well today. Oh, that's great. That's great. So now uh, a lot of the things. It's actually funny because what kind of jump-started the website that I have, like the, the initial thing that really got me back into all this was, uh, I think it was the G-Tron 4-in-1 adapter for the Wii. So it was like uh, SNES, NES, Genesis, and um, uh, N64, and it barely worked. So, you know, there was lag, and the N64 didn't work at all, Genesis didn't work with 6-button, but that's kind of what, you know... It, it came close enough to an original experience, which made me want to go and you know buy the original consoles and kind of that's how the website started. But it was you know it, the lag alone was enough to not make it worthwhile, and then the fact that you know it didn't really work as well. So when I saw the foreplay, I just thought, oh, awesome! Hopefully this will solve all of that. So um, how do you get it with so there's pretty much no lag on there? I mean. I, like, is there a secret sauce or something? Is just routing the signals correctly? I mean, how do you how do you get it to work so well, pretty much? Uh, well, there's really the answer to that is understanding. Um, first of all, I have to pitch the claim that you're going to get one of two options. You're going to get superior speed, you know, zero leg, unachievable, which some adapters have done pure communication. Like, for example, there's a product that... Um, I believe the uh, – what's the name of the company? Uh, it will come to me here in a second. But they developed a, a GameCube adapter for uh, use with uh, kind of like a an original product that Nintendo made. And they're not communicating via U USB from the way I understand it. They're kind of doing like a, a direct communication. And what consoles do, what we can't do on computers is they can tie in frame rate to pull rates. Okay, so at the beginning of every frame rate, you pull the controller. You get what you need. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It has to be with inside that frame rate. If you do it with inside the frame rate, you have what people refer to as, you know, zero leg. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the ultimate goal. But with a computer, uh, when you build an emulator or anything, even a game, it's not very easy to tie those two together because you don't really have access to the hardware like that anymore. Mm -hmm. Abstraction is so deep nowadays, you just – you hope for the best. So – you got some bottlenecks. Um, one of those bottlenecks are going to be uh, Windows operating system. It's advertised as 10 milliseconds per USB pull, and that would be a regular speed, um, not not full speed USB. Um, although it turns out to time to about 8 milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to have com compatibility, kind of like what I do, um, you got to understand that some of these controllers aren't going to give you what you want within 8 milliseconds. It's just not going to happen. So you're going to have to double that time because the controller is so slow. Now, if I was developing a GameCube controller, you know, I'd make sure it was under 8 milliseconds, and then there should be really no problem. Nobody would perceive a lag. That's pretty much what Rafnet does. Um, you know, I kind of saw what he was doing. He basically developed the rule. He said within every 8 milliseconds, that's my window. i got to have my work ready, done, and the adapter should work fine. And his products are excellent. So that's where I kind of adopted you know, my theory is, like, well, that's a good way to think. Um, but back to compatibility, um, it's just not something that's going to lend itself to a project like mine. For example, a CDI controller, which I 
cannot support and will never support, requires somewhere on the order of 32 milliseconds to complete. If I added that, everything would suffer. Wow, that yeah. long? Yes. And, is and that, does that translate to the original console too? Is that It does. Oh, that explains another reason why the CDI was so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I found that same thing that you're mentioning just now. A friend of mine, uh, Adam, actually brought that to my attention. And there is a hack um, that will speed that, that adapter up that you can do in the software. Mm -hmm. And I actually attempted that with the box here. But um, without the proper information, we just couldn't make it work. And if we did make it work, it really wasn't that much faster. So everything else is going to suffer because of the CDI, and I just didn't think that was fair. So there are other ways to handle that. We may accomplish that in the in the future, um, but for right now, CDI is pretty much the only controller I just can't deal with. Hmm. Uh, so to answer your question, I just made sure, in my case, that everything is going to be done within 16 milliseconds. And the reason I chose 16 wasn't because of the controllers. It was actually because of the USB um, low-speed restriction. And if... Anybody studies the project I make, they'll realize that the USB is based off of um, a, a project called USB-V, mm -hmm. otherwise known as um, object development. That's what they used to go under. And it doesn't actually interface with a USB port the way that most things do. It kind of does something that they call bit banging, which in the simplest sense, it just flips bits on and off on a microcontroller to simulate what a USB does. Um, now, there is a USB hub inside the foreplay a regular USB hub 2.0 that communicates with the computer. Um, but each device that hangs off of it uses um, what I'm referring to. And if you want to be able to send enough packet data to handle um, something like the PlayStation uh, pressure buttons and things of that nature or the Dreamcast, you're going to have to send uh, multiple packets uh, because one packet doesn't have enough to send it in its first window. So it's actually doubled. So the Blissbox project latency is 16 milliseconds. That ties in pretty nicely to um, the open window for a video frame. But then again, as I said in the beginning, if there was a way to know exactly when the video frame starts and then we would do the poll, nobody would ever notice lag. It, it's not possible unless you have a frame rate that's higher than you know 60 hertz or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, however, there is possible that you will skip a frame. Um, which is actually deemed acceptable. And anybody that has actually played with these different adapters on the market, you're going to realize um, comparing the Blissbox to the other products, it, it does very well. Mm -hmm. um, there are products on there that don't do well, and if you actually hook up the equipment to analyze what it's doing, they're actually 32 milliseconds or so. They're skipping many frames. Oh, wow. I don't really know why it is that they do that. Um, programmatically speaking, I, I have no idea why somebody would take that long to read a controller and you know have that problem. Mm -hmm. So I can't really answer why those other controllers suffer from that. Um, but what I know is that you know my mentor um, Raphael knew what he was doing, and that's pretty much what I stuck with. So hmm. best way I can answer that. Now, this is, um, it supported uh, Android and Windows Now at the moment, correct? Um, the full support um, is pretty much going to be anything that has a USB. We have had some issues with Linux type of OSs. Mm -hmm. uh, we addressed as many as we could. There were some problems with um, the Mac OSs, but those have all been taken care of. The Androids, um, they keep changing the, the, the versions on me, and they keep changing the game, uh, which is kind of annoying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's like sometimes it, 
it works on every version, but sometimes you're not able to use some of the axis. Like hmm. the PlayStation right-hand controller doesn't work on this version, but it does on this version. Oh. So I really don't know what they're doing. Uh, I know that it's kind of based on a kind of a Linux kernel, but I don't know a whole lot about it. And in interestingly enough, I am talking with a guy from that works with NVIDIA that has a lot of experience with that kind of stuff, and I brought that to his attention. He's like, interesting. So he's trying to think of a way to uh, circumvent all that um, to try to stay up on the on the change of the OSs and nail down that uh, that issue. So yeah, I would have thought that better. part of the Android API would have been direct controller support, talking to controllers, but I guess not. That's strange. As far as can I clarify that? I don't well, for Android, I mean, uh, when when you use the API and you talk directly to Android, you know, I would have thought they would have made their controller support a little more solid. Oh. Oh, I see. I see the Android API. Yeah, I I would tend to agree with you. Hmm. Um, I don't know what's going on there. That is kind of strange. Yeah. Who are we to say and judge? Yeah. Um, have you tested it with the Raspberry Pi yet? Yeah, that one. That product seems to work pretty well. Oh, really? That's cool. A lot of a lot of Raspberry Pi users out there are using this thing, so they're pretty my, happy with it. My friend Wes from uh, the guy that does Second Opinion Games loves Raspberry Pi gaming. He's always updating and messing with it, and uh, I think he just ordered a Bliss Box. Actually, I'm going to see him on Monday, so I'll uh, I'll get to try it out on a Raspberry Pi, you know, personally, finally. But I do I believe that the the not the latest version. Um, well, actually, the latest version would be okay, but it's in beta. The one before it is uh, necessary for the Raspberry Pi. I think the one the product. The version that's on the product when you get it may or may not work on the Raspberry Pi. Yeah, I think he uses Emulation Station, so that that way everything it has everything pre-configured, so you just okay, up, yeah. all the emulators are right there. So we actually there's a topic about Emulation Station on the Blissbox forums. Um, oh, cool. Should be pretty easy to track down. A lot of people are saying it works on this version, Emulation Station. Then they updated this version and it stopped working. Everybody's like, why? So again, it's like I don't understand why somebody would mess with a USB HID hid uh, driver. Just leave yeah, it there's there's got to be a reason, but it, I mean, and it's easy to speculate and talk when you're not part of the project. But for me, exactly. it just seems like, especially if you're working on something like Emulation Station, you would have to set your first initial boundaries. Like, okay, well, you know, joystick support's always going to be locked into here. We could always backward compatible support, you know, ROM support. But I guess not. So I don't know. I don't know how that's working. Yeah, the only other uh, platform that's worth mentioning is um, PlayStation 3, which is a USB platform, and oh, of course wow. the, the original Xbox. Now the original Xbox, it, although it is USB, it's kind of a hacked USB, mm -hmm. um, and there is a version of the BlissBox firmware that you can load so that it works on an Xbox. Although the four play is only going to show up as one controller, and you got to put it in single play mode. On the PlayStation 3, it'll work in four play mode. And the reason for that is the Xbox didn't intend to use a hub. So if they see a hub, they discard it. That's Whereas, really cool. So you could use, like, um, you know, if you love, like, a Genesis fighting stick, you could use that for, like, Street Fighter and PlayStation yeah. 3. Actually, um, I worked the other day. Um, my boss brought in a PS3 to kind of boost karma. And the next day I brought a Bliss Box in. And my buddy Wes saw that, and he's like, wait a minute, that works on the PlayStation 3? <laughs> like, yeah, his eyes got real big. And if you hit the start and the select button at the same time, it produces the home button. So you can actually use it as the main controller. That is very cool. I definitely want to play with that now. I didn't yeah. think to try that. So. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty neat. 
So now um, I'm not going to ask you to list all the compatibility because we'd be here for an hour, but I'll post it in the links and I'll post it on screen. But um, this thing is compatible with pretty much everything, and it comes with a good amount of controller adapters for all the main systems that you would assume would work, like Genesis, Nintendo, all that. And um, But you have a Kickstarter. It's still uh, live now, correct? That's correct. And the Kickstarter is targeting the um, additional cables. And there, there aren't many, so I'll just list them briefly. But... There is something called um, an Apple Pippin Atmark. Uh, it supports that. You get one cable. Um, there's the Atari Jaguar. We got a couple with that. There's the Vectrex system, which does also use the DB9 cable, mm -hmm. but it's altered. They have a different wiring, so there's a different cable for that. Mm -hmm. And then you got all the neck products, the PCFX, the Mini, and the full mm -hmm. um, neck products. And then the Wii has been introduced in this uh, Kickstarter as well as the uh, DH-15 or Neo Geo. The most interesting thing about this Kickstarter <clears throat> is that we're introducing the PC game port. And it has been modified from its original state where we were kind of playing with it to allow you to use the analogs and the digitals. So we can bring back the Sidewinder. Um, we can bring back the Exterminator and then the uh, GamePad Pro and things that's like that. That's very cool. So that's the ones that were like uh, when you would buy a Sound Blaster card in the 90s and it would have the serial game port. Jeez, I remember having to find drivers on a three-and-a-half-inch floppy to bring to my cousin Scott's house to try to make that work on his computer. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> so glad we don't have to deal with that anymore. Yep. But, all right, that's very cool. Um, now, is there any future compatibility plan to try to make things work, like uh, make this work on a Wii? so that you could actually use, you know, a lot of these other controllers on a Wii as well, or even through the Wiimote's bottom port? Um, good question. Um, the answer to that is um, pretty much it's in the air. I've um, acquired um, kind of a new product um, specialist um, marketing guy. Uh, he's pretty much trying to help me boost the product, get the word out, uh, and he has a pretty good idea of what people are looking for. Uh, so I like to bounce everything off of them. Um, but there were two ways I was thinking of doing this. <clears throat> um, what, one, one way would be if you plug the bliss box into a controller, let's say the four-play. Mm -hmm. And then you plug the um, – you have to put it in single-play mode. I can explain that in a minute if you'd like. And then you would plug the USB that you normally plug into a computer into another device that I'd manufacture. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And that would send a signal to the bliss box through the USB wire and say, hey, I'm not a USB – Give me the data that you would normally give a USB without all the other junk because building a USB host adapter is a nightmare. You don't want to have to do that. So all I need is the controller data, and that is not a really far-fetched thing. That's pretty much straightforward. I shouldn't have any problem accomplishing that. Um, but now this adapter will either have a, uh, a single use. Uh, you buy a Wii version, you know, mm -hmm. plug it into the USB, plug it into the Wii. It handles the protocol for the Wii, spits out the data, or B, you would have kind of like the reverse effect of what you have with the current Bliss, Bliss, Bliss box, where you have like a bunch of different patch cables uh, for one for each system type. Mm -hmm. Don't really know which way to go with that, um, although the marketing guy says he really thinks that the product itself is niche, and that idea is even more niche. So a lot of um, you know market speculation on that and research is going to need to be done to see if it's even worth uh, doing it. However, I will say that I get a lot of requests from people that think that that would be the greatest idea in the world. It's essentially any controller that the Blissbox supports will work with any console that we can adapt to, which is kind of exciting. 
Yeah, that is pretty awesome. And I think the reason that Wii always pops into people's heads is just simply because of the virtual console. Wii and Wii use virtual consoles, so you actually have, in in some cases, a pretty good experience of playing the old games on a newer TV. So to have, I think that's why everybody would always mention the Wii when it comes to the, uh, the foreplay, just because it's like, uh, you know, it would go hand in hand if you could make it work, you know, for a decent price. I mean, obviously... You, know, you can make anything work for a million bucks, but no one has a million bucks. It's for specifically um, the Wii, the Xbox 360, um, the, the the newer Xbox. They're all USB-type devices. So I think we'll be able to achieve that without a foreign device. Um, I know the Wii specifically I'll be able to get to. Um, I already have the information how to communicate with it via USB. But from what I understand... Um, when you play the game, the game actually has to have a native um, driver added. Like, for example, the, the Melee um, game actually allows you to use the USB port to play the games. So in that case, the Bliss Box would work. Hmm. Some modification in the USB, I think, had to be made so that it advertised correctly. But um, it also has uh, GameCube ports, from what I understand, on the back. So getting the Bliss Box to, to speak GameCube really wouldn't be that difficult. It would uh, require an additional adapter, of course, um, but that would knock out two consoles. So mm. I think we could safely say that we're going to see the Blissbox working on the Wii, the Wii in the, new, the near future for sure. That's pretty cool. Um, I actually had Kevin Horton, Kevtris, as a guest on recently, and he's working on an FPGA console system um, that emulates a bunch of old uh, game systems right on uh, the dual FPGA setup. So he's written all the code himself, and he's really pushing it to be as true of an experience as possible. And uh, you were actually the first person I thought of when he started explaining that to me. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever met him before, but i got to uh, exchange emails or addresses with you guys. But I think the Bliss Box would really add a whole other dimension to that. I'm not sure if uh, you know, you've heard of that project at all, but I definitely got to make the introduction because... Kevin's really going above and beyond to try to make it as perfect uh, an experience as possible. So being able to use original controllers would be pretty awesome. And uh, his is USB for controllers as well. So it should be um, sh- should be a good match, I hope. Uh, yeah, there are some products on the market that um, really piqued my interest. Um, there's something called, I think it was a Titan, uh, and its clone was... Uh, um, can't remember the name. Started with a C. But basically, what it did is it it, it would allow you to use um, today controllers on anything an Xbox 360, on a PlayStation 3, PlayStation 3, and an Xbox 360, etc. Um, they approached me. The there was there was two products. One was the original. I believe it's the Titan product. He he started it. Some company ripped him off. Um, but I can't go into details on that because you know I don't want to tarnish anybody's reputation here. But I know that he was bent about that, and he was pretty sore over it. And then that other company approached me and kind of wanted to work with me to connect the two products together. Um, but where I'm going with this is that there's a lot of products out there, um, and we all share some common ground. And I find that you have um, a connection, a point of interest. We all love our retro gaming. It's just something about it that kids today won't understand. Like, why do you want to play that 8-bit junk? <laughs> it just means so much to us. We grew up with it. Uh, we were the front runners. Anybody that's you know near the age 40 probably had an Atari. And that was the dawn of video games, really, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And getting back to those, those roots is, is exciting to us. So I encourage every um, project out there that, that does anything like this, um, to team up with other projects, including the Bliss Box, um, I think you're going to find that everybody has open arms and 
Uh, we try to help each other out because that's what it's all about. Yeah, for the most part, it's just been pretty awesome with that. You know, there's just a bunch of guys that are always just sharing everything they have. Like, you know, Artemio just, you know, his 240p test suite, he ports it to everything. He puts the code up. He's, you know, allowed people to make a Nintendo version based on it. It's just really cool to just see everybody kind of like, you know, no one's really coveting everything. They just want to make sure we all throw our ideas into a pot and see what comes out of it. So it's, a, it's always fun. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I do have kind of a stupid question that's been talked about before. Um, so you, the ports that the actual controller adapters plug into on the 4Play is essentially an HDMI port, correct? Yeah, there is a lot of confusion on that. Uh, I can clear that up pretty mm -hmm. easily. Um, there was uh, some talk about using uh, a display port back in the day. Um, these cables are, are nothing more than cables. There's no active electronics inside these cables. Some people think that these cables are the adapters and the 4Play is a USB hub. None of that's true. Um, I can see where some people would think that. The biggest problem with the original um, Blissbox I created was it was a big device with all these ugly ports on the front of it. There was nothing cosmetically that anybody could do to make this thing look good. Mm -hmm. um, unless you didn't want all those you know, controllers on the front. And and today I still make those custom orders. You know, people come to me, I want an arcade panel built with all these controllers on the front. Okay, no problem. Uh, that's one thing that I do. I keep that as a hobby. Um, I try not to mix it with the company and it's just kind of a custom project I have on the side. But um, there's so many opinions out there and so many different people have different views like uh, foreplay. Oh, why do you have it arranged around in a circle? Why don't you have it all in the front? You can't please everybody. Yeah. So the company that had designed it for me, uh, made the decision, or, well, the suggestion, why not just make it modular? People don't want these cables. They don't have to have these cables. Or they, if they buy them, they can leave them at home. You know, it's it's modular, and you get what you want, and you take it with you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wasn't really for the idea in the beginning because uh, I really just wanted it to be just one device that does the job. But I really have to say that, you know, if, if you think about it and you use the product – and you try to build the product, you're just going to realize over time, you know, that really is the smartest way to do it. Okay, so the next question was, well, these cables, they got to be cheap. They got to be light. They got to be strong. They got to hold up. What's going to do that? There's no point in inventing our own adapter, our own cable, because that's reinventing the wheel. So there were two candidates. Uh, one was the HDMI, one was the, the display port. The HDMI was chosen because it was just right there, readily available. It was cheap. It was easy to get. But then we found out there might be some royalties that we're going to have to pay to use these cables. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turns out, if you're not using it for audio or video, you don't have to pay the royalties anyways. That's That was one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask is because there's a lot of debate over who really has to pay those royalties. So if you're not using it for audio or video, then it just doesn't even matter, right? Yeah, I think what it really comes down to, Sony says if you want that logo on there, mm -hmm. that HDMI logo, you pay us a royalty. Mm -hmm. If you just want to use the physical adapter itself i mean no of course you have to pay a royalty i mean that wouldn't make any sense people can buy these things off of ebay and file off the you know the the, the logo or whatever and then they can use it on their own projects are they paying royalties <laughs> secondly right. if there is a royalty for using their design um there's going to be a, a a minimum number per year that you're going to have to make before they really even care uh, if i was a a big company producing large amounts of some product and I was using their base uh, cable design, 
yeah, Sony might get a little upset about that, and they say, well, we want a war, um, you know, a royalty from you, but we're not making anywhere near in those numbers. They're not going to care about a thousand units. <laughs> right. So it really squashed the whole idea about moving to DisplayPort, which is royalty free. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of talk about switching because of that reason, but really we haven't reached that. That never came about, and we decided to just leave it the way it is. Makes sense. Yeah, that was the one thing I just uh, – the open source scan converter. I'm not sure if you heard about that, but it's uh, – I have. Yeah, yeah the, he – on the, the pre-assembled version only ships with DVI, and that was the one thing I just wholeheartedly disagreed with. You know, you'd have to, you'd have to ship thousands for Sony to even, to even look at it. And at that point, it's you know as long as you're not using their marketing and their logo, it's it's still a gray area of are they even going to bother with you? And a exactly. lot of people don't seem to realize that a lot of these larger companies, you know, they look at things in the cost versus return. So even though they have lawyers on staff, if it's going to cost them a hundred thousand dollars to sue you to get five grand, they're never going to do it. So that's just I I think I mean I've I've worked in the electronics industry. I worked for a company that built um, uh, computers for medical devices. So which the uh, I mean the the um, the trademarks and the different classifications you have to get for that is very stringent. And even then it was just you know I, I understand what's the difference between black, white, and gray area. And I, I just I don't know I always kind of chuckle when I see people getting uh, nervous about putting HDMI on a hobby project, but. I think it's primarily the legacy. They see what Sony has done to different projects, and they know that they're a big company, and they, they're intimidated. Um, but you're right. It makes sense. Why, why sue somebody that has no money? Yeah. You know? The DisplayPort thing is interesting. I forgot that that's royalty-free. I wonder if everybody on their video devices should just switch to that as, as soon as possible just for the purpose of never worrying about it. But. Incidentally, um, it has near the same number of pins. Um, so one could very easily make an adapter. Um, so if your product uses a DisplayPort and somebody wants to buy an HDMI cable, make an adapter go from DisplayPort to HDMI. You know, again, mm-hmm. you may run into that issue because you're, you know, making the connector or whatever. But well, they actually have passive HDMI to, to DisplayPort cables for the devices that support that. So they do. You wouldn't even oh, have to do it. You would just link link to the other stores to sell them. Well, see, I thought about that when we originally started. I was going to offer that free, but I could. I searched all over the place. And I could not find that. So maybe that came about. Uh, I think the reason it's hard to find is because your device has to specifically be able to support that. So you can't just take like a like if for a computer video card. That's basically what they're designed for. So yeah, you could just get HDMI on one side, DisplayPort on the other, and fine because the video card can handle that. But okay. there's different handshakes involved in both, which is why it's not. I don't think you could just walk into Best Buy and get them. You got to go on Amazon and everything. So. But it is a passive cable. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, I think it's definitely a cable with DisplayPort on one end and HDMI on the other. But I'm not sure if there has to be some kind of chip inside. Yeah, that's what I'm. What I'm thinking, see, now I've seen those, mm. which wouldn't work because obviously you can't passively send the signal through, but right. it's interesting, yeah. Mm. Well, uh, the one other thing I definitely had to ask you about was the next project on the horizon after the this Kickstarter is over with. Well, I guess before I do that, so when is this Kickstarter ending? Uh, I think we have about a month left on this Kickstarter. Um, just a quick word on uh, Kickstarter, which is going to publicly be posted here soon. Um, there was a lot of momentum for this Kickstarter. Uh, unfortunately, it, it died. It died off. Um, I have somebody that, that was helping with the Kickstarter. And, you know, he was, He's working extremely hard, and 
you know, things happen. He just got called for certain things. He had a lot of work to do, a lot of things going on. Um, so he's going to go ahead and kind of talk about that publicly and hopefully get the momentum back up to where we want it for this last month. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that should be the – I think we have 32 days left on it. Okay, cool. Well, I'll, I'll make sure to post all the links, and I did back it. Um, if nothing else, the virtual boy one kind of cracked me up. I, I'm looking forward to seeing what I could do with that, especially with uh, some of the 3D virtual boy emulators I've seen out. But yeah, yeah. All right, I'll definitely post all the links, and everybody should check it out if they want the extended cable support for theirs. And we are offering um, foreplay at a small discount on there as well. Um, so if you are thinking of getting a foreplay, by by all means, you can pick it up on the Kickstarter. Although you would have to wait. Uh, if you don't want to wait, you're always welcome to grab it on the store. Cool. Okay. So uh, after that, I mean, uh, it looks like, according to the Kickstarter, everything would ship around September or October if there's no delays, correct? The, the yeah. The, the, the good thing about this time around is um, it, it's kind of a mistake, but it worked out in everybody's favor, really, but mine. <laughs> um, when I – well, first round, I went ahead and had all the plates made, uh, the, the tooling. So we don't have to do the tooling. We don't have to pay for any of that. We just need to pretty much make, place a bulk order. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the whole point in this Kickstarter. Um, and the question was, you know, are we going to have enough current people that are going to want this? Are we going to get enough new people? Um, so what we decided to really boost the sales on this, or not sales, but uh, support on this Kickstarter was to talk about this new product that you're about to segue into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was hopefully going to be the next major step here. Well, uh, I want to hear about that, but just to clarify for everybody listening who maybe doesn't hasn't followed the foreplay project, you can go on the website right now and buy it right now, and it will ship right now. The only thing that's uh, the Kickstarter's for is the ex- uh, expanded cable pack. So if anybody wants a foreplay right now and wants to start using it, just go to the store and buy it, and uh, they're shipping pretty much real time, right? Yeah, they they they'll be there in the states within five days. Um... And overseas can take up to a month because the United States Postal Service system, and nobody wants to pay 100 bucks for United uh, UPS. Yeah, so. <laughs> I know all about that with the G-Scart switch sales. So yeah, <laughs> all right, cool. Well, um, I'm sure a bunch of you will be picking them up. But uh, so, what's next on the horizon for? And uh, what's the time frame? I'm assuming early next year, right? Yeah. Now the next product um, is going under the name Interfacer. Okay. Um, basically, uh, from the beginning of my interest in emulation, there there were holes in emulation, and I wanted to fill those holes. That's pretty much the premise in this entire company is anything that really is needed out there, I want to try to accomplish. And um, one of the most exciting things is that the, the whole concept of this light gun, um, people just speculated and wrote up and you know sat there and tried to figure out, well, what is it about this light gun that won't allow it to work on LCDs? Mm-hmm. Or why doesn't it work on a computer CRT? I, I thought the whole thing about the light gun was that it, it worked on the CRTs. Is it the light? Is it the brightness? Is it timing? What, what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Ironically, most of what you read out there is incorrect. Hmm. It's 100% wrong. I'm not going to go into complete details on how it works. I'm just going to say that what people generally think is wrong. And it's actually very simple. Um, now, I have a patent on this particular product. And the reason I went with a patent on this one is I came up with a solution that works, and nobody else has. I think that's something worth holding on to. Um, my previous project is open source. 
you know, you can go and check it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. But this one itself, um, we're going to keep it behind scenes for at least the first run of it. Makes if sense. It's, if it's successful as, as we think it is, it may save um, the, the security and longevity of the company. You know, that's something important that other people would want to respect as well. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if we could secure the money um, with this product, uh, we can do things like lower the cost on the foreplay. We can make it better. We can change the design, colors. So this is a good thing. Um, now, pro- again, the product specialist, he's going to kind of be advertising this, and he's probably going to be one of the four first people, along with yourself, as I already pre- previously arranged with you, to actually hold one of these things in their hands before it actually goes to development. That's awesome. Uh, so that's going to be pretty exciting for you guys. Um, so, okay, this, so this basically, right, this allows light guns to work on all TVs, correct? The the, the whole theory, um, and so far, most data is supporting it, is that as long as there's light in the room, not emitting from the TV, as long as there's light in the room, and the TV would produce light in the case where you were in a dark room, um, a device can read an image on a wall, a screen, a piece of cloth, or something. Mm-hmm. That 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 is is uh, achievable, and the light source doesn't have to be the TV. Um, but fortunately, that's adequate. Um, regular ambient lighting seems to present a little hurdle, um, but it's working. You won't be able to use it in direct sunlight. You can't take it outside and use it. But as long as you're indoors or under a tree, uh, you should be able to get this thing to work. Even in one of those uh, gaming stations where they roll up a truck and they put a hood above you, it probably even will work in that case. Oh wow! Arcade units, it's going to work on. It's you know kind of covering everything here. Um, there's a few things that you know get in the way when it comes to trying to support so many different avenues, and that is. Uh, some flicker rates uh, with different kinds of lighting, um, obviously the ambient you know, light changing and things like that. So I put a lot of effort into uh, programming it to handle you know, most of that kind of stuff. And basically the part that I'm developing is an, an alternative way to sense a flashing white square, uh, which is basically the way that those games work. Mm-hmm. A little white square is going to flash for each target um, sequentially through frames. So that would be on the NES and the um, the SMS, and then I think even the Atari one. But doesn't the um, like the Super Scope Six and the Menacer and the PlayStation guns use a different way of reading the light? It's not the squares, or am I completely yeah. off on that? You're correct. There are those different guns out there. Super Scope's a good example. Um, from what I understand, it it uses some kind of sensing device, which, as far as I can imagine, would still work today. Uh, there might be some limitation about screen size because mm-hmm. uh, it was intended to probably work on your average 30-inch TV or whatever have you. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know the size back then, but uh, aside from that, it should still work today. Um, this does target specifically the arcade-style light gun, which um, the Zapper kind of cloned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they took most of the credit for it, kind of like the Xerox um, and Apple thing in the beginning. Who invented the mouse, right? Right. Well. This light gun theory is pretty much hasn't changed over the years, um, but they've keyed into a certain element, um, which I was speaking about er- earlier, and it's only going to work on a certain um, screen that has a certain refresh rate. Mm-hmm. And they were targeting the NTSC and the PAL systems back then. So those light guns were specific to those TVs. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to step back from that. So. I think there was actually a PlayStation uh, that actually did the light gun 
uh, method as well. And from what I understand, Sega did uh, the same type of thing. But like you mentioned, each console, I think, experimented with both. Uh, so you do find both those out, out on the market. So you got to be kind of in tune to what type of gun you're buying and how it worked mm -hmm. uh, as towards if it's going to work um, on this foreplay. Okay. So what, what we're basically going to do in the ending result is um, there's going to be two buttons on the, the foreplay. One's a trigger, one's a light. Mm -hmm. If both are on at the same time, then you've hit something. That's the way it's going to work for emulators. So you don't really have to design a special software to use it. It's going to work with existing software. The only problem is that every emulator out there has you use the mouse. So you pretty much would have to incorporate this into an emulator to use it or try to get MAME to work with it this way. So this is it's going to work with original consoles and with emulators then, as long as they add the support for it? Exactly, but we're targeting consoles in this case. Very cool. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, I didn't even realize, I, it didn't even enter my mind to use it with emulators too, but that's, uh, now I see the tie-in with the Bliss Box, so <laughs> yeah. it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, that's cool. The, the option to have both, I think, is pretty amazing. So, you know, anybody that has a NES and Duck Hunt is going to want to use that, especially, like, I have a, um, you know, a Mitsubishi MegaView 40-inch uh, CRT right there that's like, the, it's, it's, Pretty high quality. It's not nearly as good as like a BVM, but it's huge. So playing light gun games on it are amazing. But I'd much yeah. rather use like a 60-inch flat screen. So right. I think that's a uh, and that's going to be a pretty big deal. So it's yeah. pretty cool. It's uh, it should be pretty exciting. And uh, like I said, hopefully it uh, it works out real well. Uh, it supports as many devices as we're thinking, or screens as we're thinking, and I think we're going to uh, do some wonderful things with that. Yeah, definitely. So. All right. Well, um, I mean, thanks so much for coming on. It was very interesting. You know, it was kind of cool to hear the behind-the-scenes stuff and especially how the, the foreplay really works. But uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say, um, anything I forgot to mention? Um, I guess not really specifically. I think we covered a, a pretty good ground of territory there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I hope everybody's uh, as interested as I was in this. And, uh, you know, thanks again for coming on. And, uh Hang on for one second after I uh, after I click off. I have a question for you after. Okay. So so thanks again. Sure thing. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Sean for coming on, and definitely subscribe and come back and check out next week's episode because I got a bunch of other really cool stuff planned, and hopefully it'll come out half as good as. I